Good morning, everybody. How you doing today? Nice. Good to see you in church this morning. Today has been a good day, and we are believing for even more throughout the rest of this service. And before we go forward, I just want to acknowledge, man, the presence of God is here this morning. Anybody just recognize that today? So cool. I'll tell you what, here at the bridge, like we're not too big on hype, but when the Holy Spirit is here and the presence of God is here, we want to give him space to do what he wants to do in people's lives. Amen? So we're excited that you are here to be a part of everything that's happening today. And I also want to just take a minute and welcome you if you are new to the bridge. Thank you so much for being here today. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And again, we're so grateful that you're here. When you choose to spend your Sunday morning with us at the bridge, it really is an honor to be able to host you. And maybe your family's here with you today. We hope that everybody has a good time. We hope that you feel at home and that you fit right in. But even more than that, we hope that you have a time of encounter with God today as well. So again, Welcome, thanks so much for being here, and I just want to personally invite you, stop by the info center at the end of this service if you are new to the church. If you have any questions, we'll do our very best to answer those questions and just help you feel at home and find home and tell you more about everything that's happening here at the bridge. So all of us who are here as regulars, we want to put our hands together right now and welcome you to church today. Welcome, thank you so much for being here. We're going to get into the message here in just a minute, but I want to share also a couple of quick announcements, and these are things that were not in church news, but you might be a parent of a fifth grader who was going into sixth grade. Maybe right now you have a child that's transitioning from elementary school into junior high school. I want to tell you about something we're doing next Sunday morning between services. Next Sunday at 1045, we're having a promotion meeting. This is promotion Sunday next week where our fifth graders who are going into sixth grade will move from Bridge Kids into Bridge Youth. And how many know that when you go from elementary school to junior high and high school, that's a big, big change. And so we want to help not just our students, but we want to help our parents as well, okay? So if that's you and you have a student that, that's transitioning into junior high school, please come to our promotion meeting. It's happening next week at 1045. It'll be in the youth center in the front corner of our building. And um, Pastor Jeremy, our kids pastor, will be there, as well as Pastor Corey, our youth pastor. And they want to just do everything that they can to put you at ease, to talk about how we do things at Bridge Youth, how it is that we can help your students get acclimated, because we recognize that this is a big transition that they're walking into. Sometimes some students aren't quite comfortable stepping into Bridge Youth yet, but we want to do everything that we can to walk them into that smoothly and comfortably and put you as parents at ease so that your students can do that well, okay? So promotion meeting, if you are the parent of a fifth grader moving into sixth grade next Sunday, 1045 here at the church. And then one more thing I want to tell you about is, and I'm just going to tease this, we'll give you some more details in the next few weeks, but you know, this year the 4th of July falls on a Sunday. And we were looking ahead wondering, you know, how do we do 4th of July? What are people's weekend plans going to look like? So we decided that what we are going to do this year, and this is just one Sunday only, on the 4th of July, we are going to have one service at 10 a.m. And then right after that, we are going to have a big 4th of July celebration in the afternoon after church. And this is for families. This is for everybody who wants to be here. But listen, we're going to have food trucks, bounce houses, games. We have a band that's booked to come and play live music that afternoon. We're going to have a good time after church on July the 4th. And we want you and your family to be here that day. You might say, hey, I already have some plans for the afternoon or for the evening. That's cool because this will probably go from the time church is over, which is about 11.15, 11.30, up to 1.30 or 2 o'clock. And then you've got the rest of the day to do whatever, whatever it is that you have planned on the 4th of July. But we are making big plans for that day because we want to have some fun with you and your family. So uh, make your plans now to join us after service on the 4th of July. Does that sound like fun to anybody? Awesome. Cool. We hope that you will be here for it. Would you just join me in prayer right now and let's jump into God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's a lamp to our feet to show us where we stand, a light to our path to show us where we need to go. God, we recognize that each and every one of us here today, we need to hear from you whether we know it or not. Many of us in this room, we need to know where we stand because we have questions, maybe even uncertainty about what's happening in our lives and the world in which we live today. But we also need you to illuminate our paths so we know the steps that we need to take to walk into the future that you have for us. So today, right now, in this moment, we give ourselves to you, we give our hearts to you, our minds to you, we give our ears to you to hear what you might say. Get me out of the way and say what you want to say to your people, to your church today. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. Hey, meet me in John chapter 9 this morning if you have your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have verses up on the screens for you or on the screen for you. But today we're going to be uh, starting a little two-part small series called Miracles and Mindsets. Miracles and Mindsets. You know, when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus performed many supernatural, powerful, 
miracles. And when Jesus performed a miracle, it would change an outcome in people's lives. But Jesus did more than just to come and change outcomes in people's lives. He wanted to come and change the outlook of people's lives by changing our mindsets. So Jesus did miracles that changed people's outcomes, but he also wanted to change mindsets to change our outlook, not just our outcome. Because here's the thing. When it comes to having faith and following Jesus, I can't control all of the outcomes in life, but I can absolutely control my outlook of the situation. And if I can put my faith in God, I can trust that he will lead me into the good things that he has for my life. I might not understand the problem completely. I might not understand why it is that I have to deal with it. I might not always understand the path that God has for my life and why it is that he chooses to do things the way that he does. But it's not about controlling the outcome. It's about controlling my outlook so that I can step into everything that God has for my life. Can somebody say amen to that today? So with that said, I want to look at one specific story today. And between this week and next week, we're going to jump into this entire passage and look at everything that unfolds in this story in John chapter 9. But there's a cool story that takes place here where Jesus heals a, a man who is blind. We'll, we'll talk about the details in just a minute. But it's important for us to understand that Jesus does not just want to perform a miracle to change an outcome in this story. He wants to challenge a mindset that the disciples and other people have so that it will change their outlook about life and everything that he has called them to do in the ministry that's in front of them. And I would say the same thing applies to us. God wants to change our outlook. He wants to change our mindset so that we can be everything that he's called us to be. So let's read really quick from John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked Jesus, saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Interesting question, interesting perspective that the disciples had. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And then I love what Jesus says here. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Man, that's an attitude that we as the people of God should adapt. As long as we are in the world, we are the light of the world. We are called to bring light into the darkness that surrounds us. Keep going. Look at verse 6. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind of the blind man with the clay. And finally verse 7, and Jesus said to him, "Go wash in the pool of Siloam," which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. When we talk about miracles and mindsets, God not just wanted to change our outcome, but wanted to change our outlook. There was one specific story, like a real life story that jumps out to me, and this will be a bit of a silly illustration for a lot of you because it doesn't sound that spiritual, and quite honestly it's not, but I think it's a practical example that will help us point in the direction that we want to go today. When I was seven and a half years old, my family moved to Southern California from Northwest Arkansas. That's where I was born. And when I came here, both of my parents had grown up in the L.A. area, so California and kind of Southern California culture was something that was familiar to them, but it was totally foreign to me. And I was going into the second grade, and it's been so weird these last few days being reminded of that as my daughter, who is seven and a half, is about to go into the second grade. And it just reminds me that when she was at this age that she's at was when we moved to California. When I came here, I knew nothing about California. I probably stood out like a sore thumb. And I remember when I went to school for the first time, everybody probably recognized my southern drawl that I talked with because that's literally how I talked. Like I was just from Arkansas and, you know, you know me. But that's who I was when I was seven and a half years old. I knew nothing about Southern California culture. But one of the things that my dad did very quickly to acclimate me and something that he kind of invested in me, and this is a silly thing to a lot of you, my dad raised me to be a Dodger fan. Some of you love that. Some of you are like, well, I'm going to leave. I'm just kidding. Just joking. If you're not a sports fan, that's cool. It's not about the sport. It's about the principle that we want to talk about here in just a moment. And um, if you don't like the Dodgers and you like another team, We'll have special prayer at the end of service for you, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. Not really. Um, but I remember in 1988 when we moved to California, that was the year that the Dodgers won the World Series. And one of the most famous moments in baseball history happened in game one of the World Series. It was when Kurt Gibson, who, was, who ended up being the National League most valuable player that year, hit a home run on a, two hobbled knees off of the most dominant closer in all of baseball. 3-2 count, down by one, man on second. 
Two outs. He hits a home run over the right, the right field fence to win the game. The Dodgers were huge underdogs that year, and they go on and dominantly win the World Series in five games. But the reason why I point that out and talk about it was because two of the most famous calls, broadcast calls, were made during that game when Kurt Gibson hit that home run. The first, of course, if you're a Dodger fan, you know Vin Scully called that game on NBC, on national television. And when Gibson hit that home run and the ball traveled over the wall, Vin Scully said, high fly ball into right field, she is, goosebumps, right? She is gone, like as only Vin Scully could. And if you're a Dodger fan, that's special to you. But on the radio call was an equally famous broadcaster named Jack Buck, who was the, for decades the broadcaster for the St. Louis Cardinals, and he did the radio call. And when Gibson hit that home run, as the ball was lifted into the air, he said, there's a fly ball to right field. This is going to be a home run. And he says, and the Dodgers are going to win the ball game. Unbelievable. And then he uttered these famous words, I don't believe what I just saw. And it's a famous broadcast, especially if you're a Dodger fan. Goosebumps. But the point is, I remember watching that when I was a kid, and that was just like making me feel like, okay, I'm here, I'm home, this is where I'm going to grow up. My dad raised me in the Dodgers, and now I feel like I'm a part of something. And in hindsight, it was so funny because the call that defined that moment was this, this call that said, I don't believe what I just saw. And if you watch that game live or if you know much about it, it was the kind of thing where when it happened, it was almost like, I know that it happened, and I saw it happen, but I don't believe that it happened. He hit the home run. I saw the ball go over the fence. I saw one team celebrate. I saw the other team become dejected, and I saw the crowd go wild. But even though I saw all of those things, I still can't believe that it really happened because he was injured. He didn't have an, another at-bat the entire series. He never took the field and played the, a position in any inning of the entire World Series. He literally stepped into the batter's box one time, hit a game-winning home run. And it's not because he was an incapable player. He was the most valuable player of the league that year. It was because he was so injured and so hobbled, he was unable to play at all the rest of the series. But for one shining moment, he had, he had the, the strength and the guts and the nerve to stand up there and hit that home run that changed the course of the whole series. And one man said, I don't believe what I just saw because it was the only way that he could describe the thing he had witnessed. But at the end of the series, and hang with me because we're almost through the story if you're not a sports fan, but at the end of the series, when the Dodgers won the World Series, their famous manager, Tommy Lasorda, who passed away this year, he stood up in the clubhouse and they pulled up a chair and he stood on that chair above the whole team where everybody could see him. And he says, hey, 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 and the, the place gets quiet. And he says, nobody thought that we could win our division this year. Nobody thought that we could win the first round of the playoffs. Nobody thought that we could win the World Series against the team that was an overwhelming favorite. But we believed it. And the crowd and the whole locker room just goes nuts and they celebrate and they spray him with celebratory beverages. And what's funny about that story to me is that there's this one story of a team that did something that was seemingly impossible. Now, I'm not saying it was a miracle of God or that was completely impossible. They pulled it off. But the point is this. One man looked at what he saw and said, I can't believe what I just saw. And another man looked back on it and said, I never believed that it wasn't going to happen. And I think back to that story because it reminds me that throughout our walk with God and throughout our Christian life, we can take a mindset that says, I'm not so sure, or we can have a mindset that says, I never doubted that it was going to come to fruition. And God is calling us to have a mindset where we are open to the things that he wants to do in and through our lives. And in this story, God, specifically Jesus, does a miracle in the life of this blind man. But what we see happen after that are men who stand around while this is happening questioning why he ever found himself in this position to begin with. There's a miracle, but then Jesus doesn't want to just change this man's outcome through the miracle. He wants to change people's mindset and their outlook on life and the ministry that he's called them to. So I want to walk through this story slowly real quick and just pull out a few details because I believe that in the midst of miracles that God does, he also wants to change our mindset to prepare us, me and you, the church of Jesus Christ, his people, Christians, he wants to prepare us to have a mind that is ready to do the things that he has called us to do. Amen? All right, so let's look for just a moment. And here's the first thought that I want to pull out. It's simply this if you're taking notes. Jesus saw opportunity. Jesus saw 
opportunity. And if Jesus saw opportunity in the midst of his life and in the midst of his ministry, then we need to see opportunities in the midst of our life as well. And here's what I want to point out to you. Verse 1 here is so rich. It's so incredibly simple, but it's so rich. And here's why. It says in verse 1 of John 9, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now here's what stands out to me. The blind man didn't see Jesus, but Jesus saw the blind man. Now, why is that important? Because that's a really simple truth that's pulled out of this one verse. I mean, it's a simple statement. But the reason why it's important is because before we ever talk about supernatural miracles, before we ever talk about supernatural healing, supernatural provision, or whatever impossibility that you might be facing today, because all of us face different things in life, there's one miracle that we all have in common, and it's the miracle of our salvation. When I couldn't see Jesus, do you know what the greatest miracle of my life is? I mean, God's done some amazing things in my life. But before I could get to any of those details and tell you all of those stories, I have to go back to the first, the foremost, the primary miracle of my life. And it's this. When I could not see Jesus, Jesus saw me. When I was lost, when I was dying, when I was broken, when I was sinful, when I was separated from God and could not bridge that gap, Jesus saw me. He saw me in the midst of my sin. He saw me in the midst of my need, and he said, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to come to you. When I couldn't come to Jesus, Jesus came to me. Is there anybody else in the room that has a story like that? When we couldn't come to God, God came to us. Now, there's a couple of verses that stand out here that are parallel to that thought, okay? Romans 5 and verse 8. I love the way that this is written by Paul because Paul says the greatest way that God demonstrates his love. He says God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, can I be honest with you? I am more willing to do a favor for you after you and I are on good terms. Jesus laid down his life for us when we were on bad terms. Think about that. That says a whole lot about his character, and not just his character. It says a whole lot about the character and the nature of God, that when we were on bad terms, we weren't good. We had beef with God because of our sin. Or more specifically, God had beef with us because of our sin. We couldn't bridge that gap. But while we were still sinners, Jesus said, I'm going to do this anyway. And Christ died for us. And Paul says that's the greatest demonstration of God's love toward us. Man, is anybody grateful that Jesus died for you when you weren't even repentant yet? When you didn't even know about your sin, when you didn't even recognize how wrong you were, when I didn't even recognize how lost and broken I was, Christ still laid down his life for me. And that was the greatest demonstration of God's love. And this is a picture of that first miracle, that primary miracle that God does in all of our lives when we come into relationship with him and experience salvation. You know, in 1 John 4, I love the way that he writes these words. He says that we love him, we love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved us. Our love for Christ, our gratitude, our thankfulness for Christ is not a demonstration of how good I am. It's simply a response for how great God has been to me. I love you, Jesus. Why? Because you gave yourself for me and you loved me so much that you were willing to do that even when we were on bad terms. What an amazing thought that is. And here's the reason why I want to pull this out. Because I think if I could put like a subtitle on this, you know, first part of this little mini-series, I would simply subtitle it like this. What do you see? When we look at the challenges of life, what do we see? Do we see opportunity? I think sometimes the reason why we tend to have a negative view of things that are happening around us is because if we can't go back to that point of salvation... If we can't go back to the moment we were saved, if we can't go back and recognize what an amazing thing God did for us, then sometimes we can become arrogant in our faith. And there's something that plays out next that I want to talk about, but I want to just stop here for just a moment and say this. I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, how bad the track record might be, or how much regret you have about it, there is no one in this room who is any better off than anybody else because if we, one of us were lost in sin, all of us were lost in sin, and no one was better off. Nobody could earn their salvation. It's the gift of God lest anyone should boast, the scripture says. None of us are higher than anybody else. No one's better than anybody else. And we always have to have this mindset and this perspective that takes us back to the beginning and says, God did the greatest miracle at my point of salvation. Therefore, I'm no better off than anybody else. And this plays out, this principle plays out 
here at the next part of the story. But let me just say very quickly, when Jesus saw the blind man, he didn't see the blind man for his obstacle or his infirmity. He saw opportunity. Because Jesus knew that he was coming and he had been sent to do something miraculous and change his life. He was going to change the outcome in his life. But in the process, he started to change the outlook of the disciples by challenging their mindset. Let's move on and read the next three verses, excuse me, four verses of this passage. It says in verse 2, And Jesus' disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now think about how heavy that question is for a minute. Jesus walks up and sees the blind man. And Jesus sees the opportunity that he has to bring the love of God to him and bring healing to his body, most specifically his eyes. And so Jesus, I'm certain that when he saw the blind man, thought, this is my opportunity. But the disciples look at the blind man, and what do they think? They think, hmm, so what is it that he did to deserve that infirmity? What did he do to sin against God that God would punish him with blindness? And it's like they're asking this theological question and kind of judging his predicament in life through the lens of their background, through religion, and through theology. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So he asked, those, he asked that question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And look at Jesus' answer to this question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So quickly Jesus dismisses this question and says, it's not his fault, it's not his parents' fault. Instead, Jesus sees through the lens of opportunity, not the obstacle, but he says, this happened so that the works of God could be revealed in his life. What if, what if we as Christians, when we face challenges, when we face impossibilities, when we face infirmities, when we face issues that come to define us, what if rather than asking, why did this happen, what if we looked to God and said, oh, but this is your big opportunity? This is your big opportunity to reveal your works, to reveal your heart, to reveal your character and your nature. What if the thing that you're walking through right now is God's big opportunity? He's just waiting for you to get your eyes off the obstacle and see him for the opportunity that there is. What if that's what God's waiting for? And the disciples ask this question, and quickly Jesus dismisses it and says, no, 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 it's not about that. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about this, but let's finish reading the next two verses. Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm here. I know that my time is limited. There's a time coming. I'm going to go to the cross. I have a mission. I have a purpose. But while I'm here, I came to bring some light into the darkness. I'm not going to be focused on the obstacle. I'm focused on the opportunity. And right now, I need you guys to learn a quick lesson about Outlook. And with that said, I want to address two quick things that pop up from those four verses that we just read, okay? Because, like we said, the disciples, they asked a really funny question there. So, whose sin caused this man to be born like this? Surely, this was God's punishment upon his life for something that his parents did or for something that he did. That seems like an odd question. And if you don't come from a Christian background or even a Jewish background, you hear that and you can kind of look to God and say, well... What does that mean? God, do you punish people like that? And the disciples are actually asking a valid question. And I'll tell you why. Because they're looking at this through a very Old Testament Jewish lens. In fact, if you go back and you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, God begins to speak to Moses and he speaks kind of a message of judgment for those who choose not to follow God, keep his commandments, and show loyalty to God. This is what God says through Moses, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 9. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That's some pretty strong words. Verse 10, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now we can read this and hear this and we can say, wow, God sounds really harsh and judgy. But God says repeatedly throughout the Old Testament before you, I set two paths. The path of life, the path of death, the path of blessing, and the path of curse. And he says, choose life. And so when we read this, we have to understand that God is addressing people that have chosen to take one path and not the other. In fact, we also see in other passages in Deuteronomy, I believe chapter 7, where Moses goes on and says this of God. He says, God is faithful to a thousand generations of those who love him, fear him, and keep his commandments. 
In other words, what's being said here, what's being revealed here is that God sets out this path. And if we choose to walk in his ways, blessings will continue to flow into that path when we follow God and we walk in his ways. But if I choose to walk in my own ways, I'm choosing to walk a path of destruction. Now, that's a truth and a principle that was set up at the beginning of time. And God said this throughout the nation of Israel to make sure that they stayed on course. But before we act like God is judgy and God is harsh and God is difficult, we always have to understand that God still makes a path where we can experience his favor and his blessing in every area of our life. He puts the choice in our hands. And so the disciples have some context for why they're asking this question. The question is legitimate. The question is valid. But when they bring this question to Jesus, it's his response that's amazing right here. Jesus looks back at him and says, it's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. But instead, this happened so that the works of God could be revealed. Do you know what this means? This means that Jesus was saying, I didn't come to sit here and dialogue about old theology. I came here to be a curse breaker. The thing that God said would be pronounced upon your families if you chose not to follow is something that I am here to break if you will choose to follow me. Or, in other words, just because mom and dad struggle with it doesn't mean that you have to anymore. Grandma and grandpa might have had an issue with that, that they passed on to mom and dad, and now you inherit that thing too. And it's always been like this in my family, and it's always gone like this, and this has always been the outcome. But Jesus says, I am here to be the generational curse breaker that you don't have to live looking back over your shoulder. You can look ahead in faith and confidence knowing that I've broken that curse. Is everybody following me this morning? Jesus dismisses this, and I think the first issue that we have to deal, deal with here is this issue of generational curses. It is true that today many, many people still battle challenges that have been handed to them generationally. In fact, you might even look at your Christian walk right now and your Christian faith and you would say, man, I just feel like I've been at a disadvantage because that wasn't given to me by my grandparents. That wasn't given to me by my mom and dad. There were these other beliefs. There were these other mindsets. There were these other kinds of of faith or belief, if you will, that were handed to me that weren't in alignment with God's word. But when you came into this relationship with Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to break that stuff off of your life, and I'm going to show you a new way. I'm going to do new things. I want to change the course of your life. And what it looked like then doesn't have to be the way that it looks like going forward. I remember hearing Pastor Corey tell his story and say, hey, stuff ran in the family until it ran into me, and I made the decision. It stops now. It ends now. And Jesus broke that stuff off of my life. So Jesus quickly deals with generational curses and identifies himself as the curse breaker. But here's the other thing I want to kind of point out to you real quick. You know, I watch the disciples in this picture and in this moment, and I just wonder, as the disciples came with Jesus and they saw the blind man standing there, I wonder, just as just my curiosity, I wonder if the blind man could have overheard anything that the disciples were saying. Maybe he didn't even know that Jesus was near, but I I wonder if he could hear what they were saying, if he would have heard the disciples saying, hey, so that's the blind man over there. And and what do you think that he did to deserve his blindness? Or his parents? What did he do? And what I'm reminded of here is, we talked for a minute there about generational curses and dealing with that. I'll tell you something else that I think that Jesus wants to deal with right here in this moment, and it's the idea of abstract theology. And here's what I mean by this. Sometimes as Christians, we can take the word of God and we can misapply it in so many ways and we can dehumanize people and we can take the personal element of it or personal element out of the moment, completely dehumanize somebody and we can almost use the word of God as a grenade that we lob into their life that totally blows up their foundation. And I see the disciples standing there looking back in judgment from a distance, not because they didn't have a valid question that they were asking, but almost like they were looking at him like he was a theological lab rat. So why do you think he's in that shape? And Jesus isn't interested in having that discussion with them. Jesus doesn't see him for his infirmity. He doesn't see him for his obstacle. Jesus sees the opportunity to heal him and change something in his life. You know, one of the big terms that's out there these days, especially, man, in the 21st century, especially among millennials and those who are younger than me, is deconstructionism. Deconstructing, deconstructing my belief system, deconstructing my theology, and 
I understand that there are people that God wants to bring into our life where it's a safe place to talk about believing what I believe or why do I believe what I believe or how do I perfectly understand what I believe from Scripture. Those are conversations that you need to have safely within relationships of people that you trust. But let me just tell you something. You need to steer clear of conversations and relationships where people are trying to push you away from God rather than closer to God. And there's a lot of conversations, there's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of people on YouTube that want to have all these deep conversations. We want to ask all these deep questions about God and scripture and this and that and the other. And they want to ask really big questions but give you absolutely zero answers. I will say to you today, God is not interested in pushing you away from him. He's interested in drawing you closer to him. You need to be very, very careful and guard your heart that there are not people coming into your life that are pushing you away from Jesus. If all they have is questions but no answers, you probably need to find some new friends. Listen, please don't let that sound harsh, but let me say this. There's nothing wrong with asking big questions. Because guess what? God's not afraid of your big questions. As it turns out, he created the universe. And all that stuff that we struggle with that we don't know and we can't understand, God doesn't struggle with it and he totally has his head around it. And we might get to the end of our life and not have all of the answers to all of the questions that we have. But once again, God is not, tr- not asking us to control the outcome. He's asking us to control our outlook and believe in faith that he's leading us where he wants us to go. Be very, very careful about who you give attention to, that they don't push you away from God. But you know what the other side of that coin is? When people come to you and they're dealing with difficult things, encourage them toward God. Don't discourage them away from God. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, you're here today, and you've got people in your life that are coming and saying, listen, I'm facing this, I'm facing this, I don't understand why, I look at scripture, but I don't quite understand how do I apply it, what does this mean, is it really God's will, da-da-da-da-da. When we find ourselves in those situations and we don't have all of the answers, it's not up to us to answer the question, it's up to us to encourage in faith. Always encourage people in faith, don't discourage them in fear and doubt. Fear and doubt are always going to be a part of the equation, and we have to learn how to deal with them. But encourage people in faith, push them toward God. Never discourage somebody away from God. Amen? All right, that was kind of a pep talk right there, but I have a friend. He's a lead pastor at another church here in Southern California, a very, very large church. And when he was in Bible college, he got out of school, he was interning at another church near where his college was. And he was, told me the story about, it was midweek, and he was just serving one day there at the church in his internship. And there was a woman who came through the doors of the church, and she said, I've gotten a bad diagnosis and a bad prognosis, and I want someone to pray with me. So they said, okay, we're going to get a pastor. And so they got one of the pastors, and they got him as well, and they came to pray with this woman, or so he thought. And, you know, they have a bit of a different belief system than we do here at the bridge. And so they went to pray with this woman, and she said, well, I got this bad diagnosis, and the doctors also said that I have about this long to live. But we were at my Bible study group, and I read in the scripture where it says that if, is there any sick among you, let them come to the elders and pray, and, and pray before them, and let the elders pray with them, and excuse me, let the elders pray with them, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. She said, I heard that for the first time, and I thought, I need to go to my church, and we need to pray about this. And so he said, okay. He said, me and one of the other pastors were there to pray with her. So they went to pray with her, and she told that story. And the pastor said, well, that's nice that you came here, but we don't really believe that God does that anymore. So therefore, I need to correct your theology. And he said, the pastor went on for about 10 minutes just telling her why her theology and her interpretation of the scripture was wrong and what the right way of reading it was. He goes, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, all she wanted was someone to pray with her and encourage her. Instead, she walks away discouraged, thinking that she's about to die and there's no hope. Let me tell you something. If you are drowning, you don't need me to tell you the Greek word for life raft. You just want me to throw you one. (laughs) And as Christians, it's so easy for us to stand back arrogantly and piously, look at the predicaments that other people find themselves in and say, Well, that must have happened because, no, 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 God's not calling us to judge. God's calling us to encourage people in their faith toward God. When I stand before God one day, when you stand before God one day, imagine if God just pulls up the movie of you sitting with that person who's going through a tough time, through an impossibility, and when you watch the rerun together, God says, see, look what you did there. You pushed him away. 
I want God to say, I know you don't have all the answers, but you push that person in my direction, and I got the answers. I got them. I'll take care of them. Don't you worry about it. Don't try to control the outcome. Just take control of the outlook. God's not asking for us to have all the answers. He's asking for us to have faith. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, we talked about the primary miracle, salvation. But this entire chapter revolves around, and we're going to talk a whole lot more about this next week, it revolves around this very specific physical miracle that Jesus does where he heals this blind man and gives him his sight. Let's just read very quickly the rest of the story and talk a little bit about it, okay? Final thing is simply this. Somebody's trying to call me. All right, verse 6. It says, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. Now, hold on. What? When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, first of all, that's weird. And secondly, that's gross. <laughs> Wrap your head around that for a minute. Don't you think Jesus could have done it another way? Probably. But he didn't. Let's read the rest. Verse 7. And Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, here's the last thought I want to give you today. God's methods will always supersede my mindset. And I might not understand why God chooses to do things the way that he does, but I need to trust that he knows where he's taking me. Think about this for a minute. Jesus walks up to the blind man, and you know what he could have done? He could have said, be healed. And I believe Jesus could have said, be healed, and the man just suddenly have his sight. I believe Jesus could have walked up and touched him on the head, or maybe even touched his eyes like that and said, be healed, and the man would have had his sight. But instead, what does he do? He spits on the ground and makes clay. He makes mud with his spit and with the dirt and puts it in the man's eyes. That sounds crazy. It sounds like that's more likely to make someone blind than actually be healed. <laughs> but here's the point. I don't know why God chooses to do things the way that he does sometimes. And I can only imagine in that moment that everybody that was standing there watching was like, huh? That's crazy. Now, I don't know why Jesus did this. I'll say this. This is my opinion, okay? I wonder if all of this was a reflection of the creation narrative where God forms mankind, men and women, out of the dust of the earth, out of the clay of the ground. He breathes life into them with his voice. Maybe this is a reflection of God through his mouth spitting into the dirt which he created mankind with. And this is God reminding them of that creation narrative and say, I'm the God who creates new things where dead things once existed. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God did that. That's just my perspective. Maybe that's why Jesus did it. There are things that happen in our life that in the moment I don't understand why. And I can look back and read this story and to me there's something about what I just said that makes sense that maybe that's why God did that. Right now, you might be walking through something where you're like, I never thought I would be in this position. I never thought, thought it would play out this way. I never saw the sequence of events playing out like this. I never thought it would take this long. I never thought I would have to walk it out this way. But for some reason, this is the way that God chose to do it. And in the moment, we might not understand, but when it's all said and done, we look back and we say, now I know why God put the mud in my eyes. Now I know why God walked me through that sequence of events. I was talking to a family after first service today, and they've been living, uh, they've been pulling a trailer around the country and living in their mobile home that they had with them, and they did not want to do that permanently. And they found themselves living in Kansas for 11 months, and it was never a part of their plan. It wasn't something they saw themselves doing, and they just moved back here to the area. And when we talked about this after service, they said to them, for us, being in Kansas for 11 months was the mud in the eyes. We didn't get it at the time, but now we understand. I don't know. I don't know why God chooses to do things the way that he does, but here's what I do know. If Jesus gives me an order, it's up to me to have the right outlook and leave the outcome to him. I have to trust him, I have to obey him, and I have to do what he's told me to do. You look at this story, and one more quick thing I want to point out here that's just crazy to me, okay? The Bible literally says what we just read. It literally says that Jesus spits in the mud, makes this clay, and it doesn't say that he placed it on his eyes, it said that he anointed his eyes. Interesting words. Doesn't Jesus, didn't, did, did Jesus not get that memo? Did nobody tell Jesus that you only anoint people with oil? I mean, 
That sounds a little bit crazy. After service today, if you want to come see one of our prayer teams, they're happy to pray with you. And if they're going to anoint you, they'll anoint you with oil. They won't do it with mud. But for whatever reason, Jesus chose to do it with mud, and it's called anointing in the Bible. And the Greek word here is epikrio, which literally means to place and distribute. Place and distribute. And what I take from that is when Jesus took that mud and put it in the man's eyes, he didn't just place it. He anointed it because he was looking to distribute something to him. It was the power of God at work right there in his life. But here's the thing. When he anointed him with the mud, he wasn't immediately healed because then Jesus says, okay, now go down to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I think there's a room full of people here that might identify with this because maybe you're in a season right now where you feel like you got the mud in your eyes. I don't understand, God. Why is this the way that you've chosen to do this? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. This isn't the method I would have chosen. But what does God tell him to do? He says, take a walk with the mud in your eyes down to the pool of Siloam. Now, most Bible scholars think that Jesus was probably preaching from the Temple Mount right here. And that by the time they went from the Temple Mount to the pool of Siloam, it was probably close to a half-mile walk. And so here's the blind man with mud in his eyes walking to the pool of Siloam. And can't you just imagine the comments? Where are you going, man? Hey, dude, don't you know you got some mud in your eyes? Yep. How'd you get mud in your eyes? Jesus anointed me with this mud. Oh, no, you only anoint people with oil. Yep, but Jesus anointed me with this mud. That sounds crazy. I know. But you know what? I've been blind my whole life. And I've believed my whole life that one day this might happen. And Jesus is here. And if he's asking me to take a walk with mud in my eyes, I'm willing to do it because I can't control the outcome, but I choose to control my outlook. And what's so cool about it is I imagine the comments, I imagine the criticism that happened along the way, but he gets all the way down. He gets to the pool of Siloam because Jesus sent him there. He washes his eyes, and he comes out seeing. What an amazing testimony. And whether you're here today and you need God to do a physical miracle like that, or whether you're here today and you're not in relationship with God and you've yet to step into the first, most primary, and foremost miracle, which is salvation, he's offering it to us. He's just asking us to have faith and have the right outlook and leave the outcome to him. I love the way Matthew Henry described a portion of this passage with the blind man. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, said, This man let Christ do what he pleased. And did what he anointed him to do. There's that word anointed. So he was cured. Those that would be healed by Christ must be ruled by him also. He came back from the pool to his neighbors and acquaintance, wondering and wondered at. He came seeing. This represents the benefit gracious souls find in attending or being obedient to his ordinances according to Christ's appointment. They have gone to the pool of Siloam weak, but have come away strong. They have gone doubting and come away satisfied. They've gone mourning and come back rejoicing. They have gone trembling and come back triumphing. They've gone blind and come back seeing. My story, Jesus saw me when I didn't see him. When I think about the good things that God has done in my life, how dare I sit back in criticism and look at the journey that other people are on. I have to recognize that God's doing something in their life too and I need to not get in the way of it. I need to leave the outcome to him and help people with their outlook of what God's wanting to do in their life. I want to pray two specific prayers as we close today. Pastor Corey prayed for needs at the end of worship today. I want to do that one more time, but specifically for people that have a miracle that you're praying for somewhere in your life. Maybe today you need healing in your body. Maybe. There's a friend or a family member in your life that needs healing, and you are standing for them today. Maybe you need provision. Maybe you need God to restore a relationship, whether that be family. Maybe it's your marriage or the marriage of somebody that you know or in your family. I believe that God can do that. But here, here's the cool part of the prayer and the second part. Maybe you need that miracle, but maybe you don't. For the rest of us who might not be praying for a specific kind of miracle today, I think the most beautiful thing that we can do as the body of Christ is come together and stand with one another and believe for God to do good things in each other's lives. And I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm going to ask you if you bow your heads. We're almost done today. I know Pastor Corey asked this earlier, and I'm going to do it again. If you're here today and there's some sort of really big impossibility that you're facing, 
Would you just lift a hand and say, hey, that's me. I need God to totally intervene. I'm facing a real difficulty. It's an impossibility. I can't control it. The outcome seems to be out of my hands. This is our moment to get our outlook right. Hand the outcome over to God and ask that he would get involved in this situation. All right, now everybody else in the room, you might not have your hand up, but this is our moment of unity. This is our moment where we come together and we say, I might not understand. I might not even understand how you got in that situation, but guess what? It's not about that. It's about me encouraging you, praying for you, and pushing you on toward God's best for your life. And right now in this moment, we're going to combine, we're going to unify as a church, and we're going to pray for people's needs that are represented in this place. If you want to keep your hand up, you can. If you need to put it down, that's fine. But let's pray right now. Father, we give these needs to you that are represented in this house. God, there are people in this place that are facing things that they don't have the answers to. I know of people that I can see right now that are facing sickness, they're facing infirmity, they're facing questions, and they don't have the answers or the outcomes. But right now, we let go of the outcome and we choose to set our outlook toward you, recognizing that you hold our future in your hands. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would heal sick bodies in Jesus' name in this place. Father, we believe that you are a healer. We believe that our healing was purchased as a part of our atonement at the cross. We stand on that promise from Isaiah 53 and believe today that by your stripes we were healed. Heal people, God. Let the fruition of what they are believing for happen in their life. God, I pray that you would provide for people who are walking through difficult situations where they need your provision. I pray that you would restore relationships and marriages. I pray for kids that are lost, that have run from home, that might be disconnected from family members in this place, or even people that have walked away from their faith altogether, that you would restore them, you would reconcile them, and you would bring people back into relationship with you and with each other. Right now, Father, for the rest of us, even if we're not the ones who are facing the impossible situation, we combine our faith and declare that you are good, that you are for us, you are not against us, and that we can put our faith and our hope and our trust in you and believe for the outcome that you have for our lives. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I know what some of them are in this room right now. Let it be done in Jesus' name. That thing you're praying for, let it be done in Jesus' name. For the child that they don't have the answers for yet, be done in Jesus' name. For the man who's waiting for the test results from the doctor, let it be done in Jesus' name. For the parents that are praying for their kids to come home and walk back into relationship with you, let it be done in Jesus' name the marriage that's on the rocks and hanging by a thread. Let it be reconciled in Jesus' name. Lay down your weapons in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I know this is an extended time, but just with heads bowed and eyes closed, greatest miracle of all is salvation. You can put your hands down. With heads bowed, eyes closed, the greatest miracle is salvation. It's primary. It's first and foremost. And it's one thing that brings all of us together. If you've never stepped into a relationship with God, we do it by saying yes to Jesus. Scripture tells us that we have been divided. We've been set away from God. We've been separated from him because of our sin. But God in his love for us made a way by sending Jesus, his best in exchange for our worst. That when Jesus died upon the cross, it was full payment for our sins so that we could be forgiven if we would accept and put our faith in that sacrifice. But after Jesus paid that price, God did not stop there because three days later, he raised Jesus from the dead, conquering death and hell and the grave for us so that we would not have to face it when this life is over. I'll tell you, there's no better decision you can make in life than to put your faith in Jesus, experience salvation, and walk with him. If you want to do that, I want to pray a prayer with you right now. We're a little over on time, but I think this is well worth it. If you want to make a decision to put your faith in Christ, just repeat these words after me. It's not about special words. It's about the commitment in your heart. Right now, everybody write out loud. Say these words. Say, Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I believe that you are the Son of God and that your death was full payment for my sins. I believe that you were raised back to life so that I could receive new life too. So today I put my faith in you my trust in you, my hope in you for all of my life and into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.
hey, listen, if you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, that's the best decision that you could ever make in life. And this is a room full of people that want to celebrate that with you. But really quickly, I just want to say there's something we want to give you, just a free gift to help you start your journey, because this is the beginning of a journey of a life with God. Please hang tight. We're almost done here, okay? But if you made that decision today, we want to give you a gift called The Next Seven Days. It's a free gift from us to you. It's a simple book to help you start that walk with God. You can get it two different ways. You can stop by and see one of our prayer teams after service. If you need special prayer, they're here to pray with anybody as well that might need that. You can also stop by the Next Seven Days desk. It's right between the glass doors before you exit the building. We're glad that you made that decision and we want to help you. We feel like it's our responsibility to help you start your walk with God. So congratulations again. Hey, why don't we just put our hands together and welcome some people into the family of God today. Awesome. Well, hey, listen, last thing that we're going to do in service today, this is last thing, but in many ways it's a first thing. We're just going to honor God with our giving by honoring him by bringing our tithes and our offerings into God's house. And I want to just quickly say a couple things to everybody. First thing is this. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness in giving. Thank you for your generosity. We say this all the time here at the bridge, but please never let it become cliche. We recognize that the work of the ministry of the bridge goes forward because of faithful God and faithful people. And when we partner together, God honors what we do to invest in the work of the ministry. When we bring our tithes and put him first, he honors that. When we sow into his kingdom, he makes us reap and bring about fruit into our life. And we're so, so grateful that you have chosen to be generous and give into the kingdom of God. There's a couple of, a few different ways that you can give that are up on the screen right now. If you'd like to give online, you can give digitally in one of those ways. If you want to give in person, there's giving stations on either side of this first set of exit doors. There's also a giving station out near the kids' check-in area. So take advantage of whatever is most convenient for you. Thank you again for your generosity. We are so, so grateful that we get to partner with you in the ministry. And I want to ask you if you do something a little bit different with me. Would you stand to your feet? Before we go, I want to pray a prayer of blessing over every single person that's here today. Father, I thank you for the generosity of your people. God, I thank you for people that have made a decision to honor you, to put you first in every area of their life. God, sometimes we're challenged to put you first in more areas of our life, and that can seem difficult, but we do it in faith, recognizing that you honor those who choose to honor you first. So I pray that today, God, you would bless your people, strengthen them, provide for them. God, I pray that we would be a light in the darkness that is this world and that the places that we go, we would do everything you've called us to do by the power of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for what you have done today. We give this day to you. We give this week to you and ask for your blessing upon it. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we love you. Have an awesome Sunday and a great week, and we will see you soon in the house of God. God bless you. Jesus, you the victory.